Well, as Tara just said from the screen, after leading worship from the stage, thank you guys for being here. It's good to be here with you, worshiping together, uh, digging into God's word together. We're going to be in this series again tonight. We're calling Ancestry.Christ. And if you're taking notes, the sermon title tonight is simply Matriarchs in the Margins. Matriarchs in the Margins. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. Whether you got a, a, a paper copy in front of you or you're swiping there, if you have neither, you're in luck. There are Bibles under the pews. But if you open it up and you say, this doesn't look like scripture, that's probably a hymnal. Put that back. Go back under there and grab a, grab a Bible. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to read verses 38 through 42, where it says, Jesus visits Martha and Mary. It says, as Jesus and disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister, Mary, sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. And also, before we jump in, I want to read Psalm 6811, where it says, The Lord announces his word, and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng. Let's pray. Lord God, before we step into your word tonight, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here. God, minister to our hearts, minister to our minds where things may seem uh, divisive, Lord God. I pray that you would bring unity according to your word. God, where, where what we talk about tonight might peel back scabs, I pray you'd bring holy healing through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would use your word to bring about fruit and fresh perspective of, of your love and your mercy and your grace tonight. And everybody said, amen. So we are in this series, Ancestry.Christ, and for the last two weeks, we've parked it in Matthew chapter 1. Because in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it speaks to David and it speaks to Abraham. And we've looked at both of them over the past two weeks and how that speaks to how we lead our families, how we uh, have faith for our families. Last week, looking at David and his parenting and the lessons that we can apply to ours. But in Matthew 1, 1, it talks about how Jesus was both a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. And then from here in this chapter, it makes a run through Jesus' genealogy. And while David and Abraham are the most notable names, what we've also noted over the past couple of weeks is you've got some variety of names here. You've got not only really holy people, you've got some pretty horrible people, all within Jesus' family tree. And as we've remarked, you would think if, if God was going to send his son in the flesh, he would put him in the pristine family tree with all the best branches, right? Where if you background check that family, you're going to find nothing but, but uh, the hall of fame in terms of faith. But when you do a background check on Jesus's family tree, you see all kinds of characters from the best to the worst, to broken branches and checkered characters. You know, every family tree tells a story. I think that's the slogan for Ancestry.com. Your family tree tells a story. My family tree tells a story. Jesus's family tree tells a story. And these, this holiday season, we're no doubt going to spend some time with family, whether it's just our own family or extended family, or we'll head to the grandparents for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And maybe your family's dramatic. Maybe it's pretty dull. <laughs> no matter where your family is on the spectrum, none of our family trees are perfect. But we can take heart this season because neither was Jesus's. 
And every family tree tells a story. So we're in this series looking at stories from Jesus' family tree. What can these tell us about the faith we have for our family and the faith we have for our stories? And we haven't even looked at yet perhaps what is the most notable thing in the entire genealogy in Matthew, and that's the inclusion of women. Matthew includes five women in this genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and of course Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we're not going to look at all five tonight. We'd be here all night, and, and I'm hungry, but uh, we should take note. And why is this notable? Well, because women weren't included in old genealogies. Genealogies, for the most part, were used to trace your descent through the, the males of each household. And for Jews, they wanted to trace their descent all the way back to Abraham and the promises of God made to Abraham. This was imperative in that culture to have your genealogy right next to your social security card, your birth certificate. You had your genealogy that could be traced all the way back to Abraham. But we don't keep those with our social security card and birth certificates because for us genealogies they don't carry as much importance they don't determine our destiny to us it's a list of names right genealogies in scripture have to be the most skipped over passages in all of the bible we just hit fast forward when we get to them and we're like god bless it right i'm not gonna reread the entire genealogy like i did two weeks ago either rest assured that took longer than i thought it would but there's a, a beautiful quote I was reading this week by a, a 20th century historian and social philosopher whose name I'm not going to butcher. Just know he was German. And he said, what's in a name? This history of the human race is in names. Our objective friends do not understand that since they move in a world of objects which can be counted and numbered. They reduce the great names of the past to dust and ashes. But the whole meaning of history is in the proof that there have lived people before the present time whom it is important to meet. So I read that quote because when you read that quote and then you go back to a list of names that trace all the way through the Bible's history, you kind of look at it a little differently. History in its essence is a list of names and events that we should get familiar with, get acquainted to, and come to know and meet. But history on its best day so often pushes the contribution of women to the margins. Now, when you talk about the margins or marginalized, like in text, you've got the text and then the white space to the side. Some books have more, some books have less. That's the margin. So when you talk about being pushed to the margins, you're talking about somebody's voice and contribution pushed from the main text to the side. What am I talking about with history? Well, Steph and I, Two weekends ago, we went and saw the new movie about Harriet Tubman. It was a, a biographic movie about one of the strongest human beings in American history. Right? She was named Moses because she didn't just free herself. She went back countless times to free something like 70 different slaves from slavery. She's one of the most incredible stories that American history has ever witnessed. And it was a great movie. But I'm a book guy. So I'm like, what, what are some good biographies that I can read about Harriet Tubman? And when you actually look into it, and I got to digging, when it comes to biographic work about Harriet Tubman, it is so minimal. There was a book written in the 1800s where they glorified a couple stories, embellished it like they would at that time in those books, and then there were some children's books. And it wasn't until 2003 that a scholarly, well-studied, historic biography was put together. So you got Harriet Tubman. I hope most of us probably know who Harriet Tubman is, a huge figure in American history, where for a century and a half, her story was just kind of pushed to the margin and silenced. And one reason, if we're honest, is because the one-dimensional picture of a woman who feared God but just wanted to go back and free some folks, that's palatable. But a, a full 
picture of a gun-toting, freedom-fighting, African-American woman that refused to be marginalized, not as well-received. So she was pushed to the margins for a century and a half, as so many women in their stories are, overlooked, unsung, underappreciated. You know, it was almost a century before Harriet Tubman, when Abigail Adams, who was the wife of the future president, John Adams, she wrote in a letter dated March 31st, 1776, as they're preparing to draft the Declaration of Independence, and she urged him and other members of the Continental Congress as follows. She said in this letter, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. She said, I desire that you would remember the ladies. We still need to heed this in our culture and in the church because there's fruit when we forget. There's tragedy when we forget. There's a danger. You know, at the turn of the century, the Nobel Prize winner Amarta Sen showed in an essay that 107 million women across the globe were deemed missing people. Whether it was because of trafficking or unsolved cases, 107 million women missing, forgotten, just in society across the world. It's a crazy number. And then in the book Half the Sky, the author Nicholas Kristoff wrote, listen to this, it's wild. It appears more girls have been killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls than men were killed in all the battles of the 20th century. More girls are killed in this routine gender side in any one decade than people who were slaughtered in all the genocides of the 20th century. That's insane. You know, it was last, last year about, I watched the movie Wind River because I, I got a Jeremy Renner man crush. I'll confess that from the stage. And it's a random movie that was on Netflix and it sucked me in. And in this movie about the, the murder and disappearance of a Native American woman, it was the first time I learned that there's a database for, for missing people for all different people groups except for Native American women. There is none. When they go missing, they're just erased and completely forgotten. Just another place in our culture where women, especially of color, are forgotten in the margins. I desire you would remember the ladies. These words still carry weight centuries later. And we too have to do better than our ancestors, which is what she was asking her husband to do. And this is the very reason that the genealogy in Matthew 1 is so remarkable. Because it remembers the ladies at a time and in a culture when they were pushed to the margins. You know, looking at the history of Jesus' family tree in Matthew 1, Matthew refuses to leave women in the margins where genealogies in that culture often left them. And you would ask why? Because Jesus didn't leave them there either. Right? Earlier this year, 2019, we, we started the, the year with a series, Myth Busting. I think we were in it from like January to March, just looking at half-truths in the church and, and, and really church cliches and myths that hurt our faith and hurt the church. And one of them was women in ministry and teaching. So we're not going directly there tonight because we just taught that earlier this year, but you can podcast that. Tonight we're painting with a broader brush, just speaking to all women in God's kingdom and their dignity and worth and voice. Because, you know, recently there was a video from what was called the Truth Matters Conference with many prominent church figures, none more prominent than the man that was hosting it, John MacArthur. And there was this roundtable discussion where the men on stage were basically uh, giving 
hot take responses to a word or phrase. And, and one of the words brought up was Beth Moore, prominent female teacher uh, within church culture in America. And the two-word response of MacArthur was simple. It was, go home. Go home. Saying you don't have a place in a pulpit, in leadership, in a, in a prominent role in the church. Go home. And I don't pivot to topics in the culture on a whim because I don't know if you've noticed our, our culture and the church has an outrage addiction. We just chase our tails all the time. But uh, this brought up obviously some petty discussion because it was on social media, but also some fruitful discussion about the role of women in the church. Where do they belong? All right, and those two words in that YouTube clip reverberated everywhere because go home goes beyond just women in the pulpit. Go home speaks to women wanting to hold public office, chase public callings or, or whatever. It tells them to go home. Go back to the margins where you can't influence and you can be easily dismissed. Uh, just shameless plug for Discover City Life on December 7th, we talk about the church and we open it to questions and we give answers. And one of the common questions in Discover City Life is, what does your church believe about women in ministry? And I would tell you tonight from the pulpit, we're Team Beth Moore. Right? Whether it's me or Pastor Fred or Elon Fellowship that we're a part of, we believe, yeah, men and women are different in gender. We're beautifully unique and different in gender. But we're equally gifted, equally anointed, and women don't fern. They don't form the church's JV team, right? So let me, throw, let me throw a caveat on that, though. I don't say Team Beth more so that I can make another us versus them. Like, I, I've got friendship with pastors that minister and would agree with MacArthur on compliment, complementarianism and the, the role of women in the church. And guess what? I think we're going to worship together in heaven, right? Second caveat, John MacArthur, let me just say it from here, has learned more about the Bible than I will in my lifetime, like in two lifetimes. That man is smart and well-learned, but I also know in 1 Corinthians 13, it says you can have the knowledge of all the world and the angels, but if you don't have love, you're a clanging gong, you're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And when I watched that video and, and heard just this smug, dismissive comment, it was followed by laughter, right? It was followed by full-stop statements that were questionable. I just heard noisy gongs. And in the dialogue, it was said that we can't let culture exegete the Bible. How many of you guys on your Facebook feed, I hate my Facebook feed, sponsored, like my, it's just sponsored posts. All my sponsored posts are like sermon clips. Anybody else or is it just me because I'm a pastor? Like I scroll my Facebook feed, it's sermon clip after sermon clip of people I've never met in my life, I'll never meet in my life. But one of them was a guy, sometimes I watch him, I shouldn't, but <laughs> it was a pastor rallying around MacArthur's statement, and in this clip, he, he talked about how it's progressivism taking the truth of the Bible and staining it. And, and basically echoing what MacArthur said, we can't let culture exegete the Bible, which means translate it and determine its truth. And this is true. This is true. The truth doesn't change. We can't shape it and help it fit our culture's new progressive desires every Monday when it changes. And for this reason, biblical truth often offends the culture that doesn't cling to it. But I'd argue that recognizing the dignity, contribution, voice, and place for women isn't progressive. If anything, it's regressive. Like, we pray regardless of denomination, regardless of whether you're in John MacArthur's church, a Catholic church, a Lutheran church, like the meets here on Sunday, or this church. We all pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we were taught by Jesus as believers to pray that way. Well, then by all means, let's regress to the two most clear and vivid pictures we have of God's kingdom on earth and his will being done here on earth, which is Genesis 
before the fall and Jesus' ministry, when Jesus was ushering in the kingdom. So I want to look briefly at these two tonight because they give us clear pictures of God's divine intent for his church and his humanity. Some of this we covered back in February, it might have been, but we're, we're going a different direction with it. Just pray my voice holds up. Or we going to call the worship team up and go home. <laughs> but Genesis, Genesis, God creates both men and women in his image, speaking to creativity, intelligence, uh, uh, leadership, imagination. And throughout scripture, even in Genesis, like we, when we speak of God, we use the pronoun he and him and alike. But clinging to the idea that God is a man is flawed because God wasn't made in our image. We were made in his image. God's not human. And yes, we, I call God Father. Jesus said, you know, pray our Father who art in heaven. Yet the pronoun for the Holy Spirit in the Hebrew is feminine. So I find that ironic that some people would say that women shouldn't teach God's word, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which we think, man, if you're teaching from the pulpit, you should be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is in the Hebrew feminine, right? I mean, we can, can we get awkward for a second? Don't giggle. Michael W. Smith, my parents used to always play, what is it? El Shaddai, El Shaddai, something, something, Adonai. I don't know. But El Shaddai means many-breasted one. Can you think of how much I would have giggled as a kid if I knew that? But again, this isn't to project gender onto our image of God, but it should remind us that all human beings were made in his image, men and women. And this should project dignity and honor on both genders. And to strip uh, dignity from one is to devalue the image of God that were given in scripture. And maybe many would say, well, well, Eve was created, it says in scripture, as Adam's helper. And in our culture, this sounds subservient. Like if you're a helper, you're beneath the person you're helping. But that same word helper is used in the Old Testament for God some 16 times. How many of you think God is subservient to you? I hope not. We can talk afterwards, right? When it's used for God in the Old Testament, it speaks of being a rescuer. That is way different than helper as we see it. God isn't inferior and neither was Eve. In Genesis, we see it was God's intention for them to co-reign over creation. A hierarchy based on gender wasn't God's intent, but it was a result of the fall. It was a result of sin. And as a result of the fall, no longer equals who co-reign, man and woman would wrestle for control and man would rule over, as God says in the curse, women. And in the broader scope of patriarchal history, Man would suppress women's rights and their destinies again and again. And you look at biblical history. Israel wasn't immune. King David wasn't immune. This was a man after God's own heart and Jesus' own family tree. Even the best of men are susceptible to treating women badly. Right in Matthew 1, in the genealogy Matthew provides, he doesn't just mention King David, he mentions Bathsheba. And the history of Jesus' family tree is sexual abuse committed by a king. And to tiptoe around this reality, some of painted Bathsheba as a seductress, but scripture says her bath was one of ritual cleanliness. And most telling in Nathan's parable rebuking David, she's represented as an innocent lamb. It was King David drunk off his own power who used that power to assault Bathsheba. The sexual abuse of this woman was rooted in his abuse of power. You read 2 Samuel 11, you'll notice how many times it says David sent. He sent somebody to go see about Bathsheba. He sent somebody to bring Bathsheba to him. He sent for Bathsheba's husband to come back 
So it would look like he impregnated her, and then he sent him back out to the battlefield, and then sent a message to have him killed. All this sending, which is just this theme and this repeating of this word that shows his abuse of power. No longer about serving, which is why God gives us power, but about sending, getting, and abusing. And God's rebuke comes fittingly in Scripture when it says that God sent the prophet Nathan. All of a sudden, God Almighty is the one doing the sending. And so Nathan comes to David, and how do you get a king to condemn himself, right? Well, you tell a story where there's this innocent sheep that a man who has plenty of sheep steals for himself, and David condemns himself through this parable. Bathsheba was the innocent lamb that belonged to her husband. And again, for some, her innocence is almost too painful to face, that a good person can suffer tragedy, especially at the hands of a godly person. David was supposed to be the foil to King Saul, right? The holiness to Saul's horribleness. This man after God's own heart, and yet even the most godly human being is capable of, of bad failings. It isn't just included in the Old Testament account we get of David. It's prominent in the family tree of Jesus. This is a branch on his family tree, both the perpetrator and the victim named. And this story, sadly, isn't all that uncommon. It happens again in the Bible just chapters later with Tamar, being raped by Amnon. It's too common in the Bible, in our culture, and even in the church. And I highlight it because it's right here in Matthew 1, but it's not commonly addressed in the church. And again, maybe we want to preserve David's standing as a man after God's own heart, but we end up marginalizing the victims of abuse. To not address what God addresses is to give a false picture of his heart. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, not to speak is to speak. You know, victims of abuse so often walk with a shame that was addressed on the cross, but when it's not addressed by anybody in the church, what does it say? Your shame is merited. God doesn't want to deal with it. And we end up living in disgrace rather than grace. You look at Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all had some level of disgrace culturally. Rahab and Ruth weren't even Jews, they were Gentiles. All four could have been getting into some stiff arm and pushed to the margins of society for various reasons. But Jesus clearly had a heart, as God does, for the marginalized in our cultures. He clearly had a heart for it in the Gospels. Whether it was lepers, tax collectors, prostitutes, you name it. If they were in the margins, he was finding them and loving them, including women. You look at the account of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew wasn't alone on his emphasis of, of women when it comes to Jesus' life and ministry. It wasn't just some lone guy with an agenda to push. Right? You look at the Gospel of Luke. It says in Luke 8 that women were amongst Jesus' disciples. And then two chapters later, Jesus sends these same disciples, of which there were about 70, out to go. And, and it says, share his message. Dare I say, teach the message of repentance and salvation, including the women amongst them. And then where I want to park it is Luke 10, which we read at the beginning, verses 38 through 42 where Jesus is in, the house, is in the house of Mary and Martha, and he's teaching. And Martha was doing the housework, as we read. She was being the hostess with the mostess. She was uh, a good housewife. Some of you are thinking of all the stuff you're going to be doing to prep for Thanksgiving when your family comes. That's what she was doing. Meanwhile, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. And most applications of this text, they're not wrong, right? They're about... The poll we have, especially in the holidays, let's be real, to, we talk about resting. No, we're going, going, driving, doing, 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 and do we pause to, to spend time with God? And it speaks to all of life. Right? We want to do for God, and we hardly spend time with him. We're human beings before we're human doings. 
And this is an important truth, but we can't miss the cultural context of what, the, what is happening right here. Because in this culture, girls and women were not allowed to sit at a rabbi's feet and be taught. Many, Mary had basically broke into the boys' club and was just chilling with them, listening to Jesus teach. This was a culture where Jewish girls couldn't go to school to learn to read and write. And where some rabbis said it was evil, like a sin to teach girls. Women were seen as more than property, or excuse me, little more than property, and pushed to the margins in so many different ways, including not being deemed of receiving instruction from spiritual teachers. But Jesus taught. He taught women. He commonly, and I believe intentionally, taught in the outer court where women would be present when he taught at the temple. And here he's teaching a group that included Mary in Mary and Martha's house. And it says when we read the text that Martha is the one that opened up the house to him. And again, she was getting the home ready and doing the housework while Mary sat and listened to Jesus' teaching. Martha was assuming the place she'd been giving, but Mary, again, she was crossing boundaries placed on women in that culture. She was taking the posture of a disciple at a rabbi's feet. And what does Jesus say to her? Go home? <laughs> Get back in the kitchen where you belong? No, he says Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. The disciple-rabbi relationship is important, too, because a, a disciple or a student being taught by a rabbi wasn't just supposed to take that teaching. They were supposed to emulate the rabbi in everything he did, including rightly dividing the word of God to minister to people and to teach. And people who point to passages in Timothy and Corinthians, which, again, we addressed earlier this year. You can podcast that. But they speak to those as being normative for the church and everything that contradicts it elsewhere in the Bible as being exceptions. So we have to ask the question, considering the content and context of Scripture, what's really the norm and what's really the exception? Right? When we look at Genesis and we look at Jesus, these clear pictures of God's kingdom and will being done on earth as it is in heaven, women are given a prominent place and a role to play and a voice to have. I believe it's... Uh, Fashion to Rain by Chris Vallotton, which I would recommend any of you read if you're interested in this. He puts it this way, that 40 authors wrote the Bible over 1,500 years in several countries and cultures, and only one man and one voice seems to restrict women from leadership, Paul. So the question becomes, what's up with those verses, which we dug into earlier this year, but then the question is, okay, what's up with Paul? What's the norm for him, and what's the exception? And key for me in this is the end of Romans 16. So Romans is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It just gives this beautiful picture of the gospel. And Romans 16, though, is kind of like the liner notes in an album, if you even remember what those are before we started streaming music, where it's shout-outs and thank-yous to people that they had made the album with. Paul in Romans 16 is basically giving shout-outs to people he had done ministry with. And when you go through the list, you've got Phoebe, who's a deaconess. You've got Priscilla, who he calls a co-worker. And finally, among the apostles is, is Junia. Not just an apostle, but Paul says, outstanding among the apostles. Right? And apostles were among the highest level of leadership in the church. We're talking pioneers, church planners, beginners of new works. And it's interesting to me that some people that translated the Bible into different translations take the female version, Junia, and turn it into Junius, the male version. Almost like they couldn't believe that Paul was saying this. I've said it before that we've got a pronoun problem, but there's just some grammar things we have to pay attention to. When I've talked about it before in terms of a pronoun problem, the Bible uses the pronoun you thousands of times in Scripture. A vast majority of the time, it's plural. But in our individualistic culture, we take those, those verses that are about the church, the body of Christ, and we make it about me, myself, and I. But another pronoun issue is, is uh, we can look at 
Psalm 68:11, for instance, the verse we read at the beginning. The New Living Translation I often preach from, it says, The Lord gives the word, and a great army brings the good news. And other translations speak to a great crowd, a company, or host of people, because the Hebrew says they. Right, so it's, it's a plural pronoun. And we don't distinguish gender when we say things in the third person. We just say they, them. But Hebrew does. When it's translated they in English, we get this indistinguishable pronoun or gender neutral nouns like crowd or army, but not so in the Hebrew. This participle in the Hebrew is clearly a feminine suffix taking the place of a feminine pronoun. You're like, okay, shut up, English major. But the, the most correct translation is those women who announce the good news. The NIV says the Lord announces the word and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng. And when you read it in its context, you read the, the rest of the chapter, there's no contingencies on this declaration or announcement. Right? It doesn't say only to other women or only to kids up until the age of 12 right? or only in small groups and, 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 and life groups. There's no contingencies placed on this. And this isn't some exception to the rule. A couple women. This is a great host, a mighty throng, an army of women sharing the good news and the truth of God. And the inspired word of God doesn't call for these women to go home. Doesn't call for them to keep their mouth shut. Doesn't tell them to know their place. Jesus would say of women preaching, sharing the gospel. I know it's sometimes weird in our culture. You look at the global church. You watch some of these documentaries about the church in Iran. It is being led by women. Jesus wouldn't tell these women, go home. Know your place. He would say of them, she has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. She's not going to be pushed back to the margins or told to go home. And You might call this progressive. <laughs> you might call this regressive, but let's regress to the Bible. Genesis, Jesus, Junia, Psalm 68, 11. You know, in the church culture, the word feminism is almost triggering. It's become politicized. But we do well to remember that femi feminism started connected to the church centuries ago in a world where women weren't allowed to vote. And again, they were often seen as less than human and more like property. And it's why the, the feminist movement when it started was so tied up in abolishing slavery because both were tied up in the dignity, voice, and just life that we deserve regardless of gender, regardless of the color of our skin. That spiritual freedom should be reflected in, free, reflected in freedom and justice for all. It wasn't until the 70s with the women's liberation movement where the word feminism got tied to political things like abortion or sins like promiscuity. But now in the church, feminism has become like a, a, a hot topic, triggering word, where we kind of go to our corners. But don't forget, when it comes to the voice of women, the dignity of women, their place in discipleship and teaching, Jesus was, by its early definition, a feminist. The Jesus we worship, who we're about to close in worship, if I could have the worship team come up, by the way, loved and wanted to elevate daughters of God to their proper, proper place. And it wasn't with the command to go back to the margins or go home. But yeah, I'm not going to the worship team up while I soothe my voice. <laughs> you know, I, again, I preached on the subject of women specifically in ministry earlier this year, and I remember podcasting different women that were pastors, reading different articles because I didn't want to be just a, a guy preaching from my perspective. And there was a, a female leader in the church being interviewed, and somebody asked her, like, do you ever question your calling, that God called you to ministry? in light of what other people believe. And she said, no, I've never once questioned my calling, but the question I have is, where is there a place for me? Where is there a place for me? Because I feel like I'm in the margin. Where does my voice fit into the body of text? Or more specifically, where does my voice fit into the body of Christ? And if that's you tonight, regardless of gender, 
What, you just feel marginalized, maybe because of things you've done and the shame you're carrying, things that have been done to you. Or you feel marginalized due to things people have said about you because of race or class, whatever it may be. Let me remind you of the invitation that Christ gives. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you feel like you have to work twice as hard to be recognized at work or even in the church, or you feel like you have to change who you are to fit in, Jesus says none of that. He says, look, I've done the work. You come to me and you find rest. Not more work to, to size up or fit in. Find your rest. Find your identity in Jesus, who he created you to be, and all he's created you to do. So tonight, if we, if we could stand as we're going to go back into worship, if you feel on the margins, feel like an outsider, feel like disgraced, know that if Jesus was here tonight, he would run to you like a heat-seeking missile, right? He would hug you and minister to you like he did throughout his earthly ministry. Finding those who were marginalized, who have been pushed to the side by their culture, who felt like outsiders, and reminding them of God's love. And God, I pray tonight, whether it's due to history, whether it's due to circumstances, where anyone here that feels marginalized or disgraced, remind them of your grace tonight. As we close in worship, sing of your goodness. Remind us, God, of our identity in you and the calling that flows from that, Lord God. Regardless of age, generation, gender, class, Lord God, there is a calling on each one of our lives to be ambassadors, to be witnesses, to be your sons and to be your daughters. So we praise you, our Father who art in heaven. God, we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's sing.